When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's quirky history, because to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is, in some way, unformidable. Well, there were two directions to go in in current Met news, not that this podcast is really about current Met news, perhaps it's more of a respite from it, but, you know, all, all current Met news in September of 2021 here has either been the 9-11 game or the upcoming Once Upon a Time in Queens documentary. Um, we've already done a Bruce Chen unformidable for because he started the Piazza game, and despite the cavalcade of random 2001 Mets they trotted out during the weekend series uh, this past weekend for the 20th anniversary remembrance, I mean, let's be honest, I'm Barely qualified to talk in depth about the Mets. I'm certainly not qualified to talk in depth on 9/11. And moving as it was, I'm kind of over all the coverage of it this past weekend. So of course, I'm just going to go with the topic nearest and dearest to my heart: the 1986 New York Mets. It's very tough. They're perhaps overcovered topic. Uh, even my friend, who also and I, who grew up you know, at age 11 when the Mets won the World Series, then and when Once Upon a Time in Queens was coming out, he was he was kind of like, what what else is there to know about this team? I mean, really, 
Uh, so, yeah, I know there's, they're, they're kind of the opposite of what this podcast tends to cover. I mean, I did sneak in a Randy Neiman podcast, but on the whole, the 1986 Mets team was about as heralded as could be, certainly at the time, and even more so perhaps afterwards. But one of the biggest names in that series, of course, started his career with the Mets and almost made the dream not work for our 1986 Mets. The later after his Met career was over, master of the quote-unquote split-fingered fastball, or perhaps something different. I thought, why not? Let's look back at the career from a Mets perspective of the man who almost single-handedly thwarted that season, Mike Scott. Michael Warren Scott was born on April 26, 1955, in Santa Monica, California. He was a natural athlete who played basketball as well as baseball, and in fact, in interviews, said that he actually preferred basketball, but thought he had a better chance to go further in baseball. While he starred in those sports in high school, he was not drafted uh, in the MLB out of high school, so he went on to college at Pepperdine University in California, Malibu, I think, and established himself as a promising young pitcher with a live fastball excelling both at college as well as in international competition. He was a member of a U.S. amateur team at the Pan American Games that won a silver medal to Cuba in 1976. And in that year, he was drafted in the second round of the 1976 June draft by the New York Mets. The Mets were aggressive with the 21-year-old draftee, starting him in AA Jackson, in 1976, and he pitched there as well in 1977, where he did well. In AAA, though, he would endure some struggles and realize something that would bedevil him for much of his career, and in fact for his entire Met career, that he was badly in need of developing an off-speed pitch to complement his strong, if sometimes too straight, fastball. In 1979, though, the Mets were—stop me if you've heard this before— both very bad and very cheap. So they continued to be aggressive with the young prospect. And in 79, as well as 1980, Scott would be up and down uh, between AAA and the majors, uh, starting to excel and master AAA, but really struggling uh, at the major league level. For me personally, those are the first years I really actively remember watching the Mets. I remember Scott well. I remember being incredibly frustrated with him, uh, perhaps because he was pushed by the announcers and the organization, I think, as someone with promise for the future, even at age, you know, five, six, seven, I knew what a young pitching prospect could mean for an organization, and that people like to dream on a young fireballing right-hander, but uh, he just, for the Mets, never, never delivered. It's felt like, at least to a young fan, it certainly felt that way. Uh, but for Mike Scott, he would make his Major League debut on April 18, 1979, against the Montreal Expos, coming in in relief of Pat Zachary, who struggled in a three-inning outing. Scott would throw a perfect fourth inning, but would surrender a run in his second inning of work on three consecutive two-out singles, uh, culminating with a Tony Perez RBI single. He would escape further damage by retiring Gary Carter, who seven years later he would be devil along with all of Carter's New York teammates in the National League Championship Series to escape the inning and bring an end to his Major League debut. 
A week later, Scott would make his first career start and earn his first Major League Baseball win at Shea Stadium against the San Francisco Giants in front of what I'm sure was a thrilled crowd of 10,170, according to baseball reference. I went to my first Met Games uh, in 1979, and boy, was it cavernous and empty. And they never let us down from the upper deck anyway. In the game, Scott would go only five innings. He'd allow three runs, one earned, strikeout none, uh, which was an incredible thing for someone who threw that hard, but he really didn't strike people out uh, with the Mets. Uh, However, the Mets had gotten to Vita Blue early, coasted to a 10-3 victory, and Scott earned his first career win. He'd struggle in most of his subsequent starts, uh, very inconsistent, not going deep into games. He went less than five innings in five of his first seven starts, uh, culminating in a third of an inning outing against the Cardinals on May 31st. After that start, he was moved to the bullpen for a few outings and ultimately back to Tidewater until September call-ups in late 79. And in those two starts he made in late 79, he really showed, I think, what was so maddening about him. In the first start, he went eight and a third innings in a 2 nothing loss to a powerful Expo team that was still fighting the eventual world champion Pirates for the division. Game went scoreless into the ninth until the Expos got to Scott for two runs. And he would follow that up in his next start by allowing seven runs in a third of an inning to the Cubs in his final start of the 1979 season. The Mets would, of course, undergo a regime change prior to the 1980 season, and perhaps that, more than anything, led to, I think, a more patient and conservative approach with the team's younger players. So Scott spent most of 1980 in AAA Tidewater, where he seemed to finally master AAA. Uh, He did get a September call-up in 1980 and earned a spot in the 1981 rotation in spring training. Between 1981 and 1982, uh, Mike Scott would appear in 60 games for the Mets, making 45 starts, and he was not good. (laughs) With a fastball that was mostly as straight as an arrow and very mediocre secondary stuff, uh, that 95-mile-per-hour fastball didn't really matter that much, and he just couldn't establish himself. You dream of your hard-throwing pitchers being strikeout pitchers, but... Scott just was not in 81. He threw 136 innings. He walked 34, struck out 54. In 1982, he threw 147 innings, walked 60, struck out 63. He had a 3.90 ERA in 1981 and just a dreadful 5.14 ERA in 1982. Frank Cashin later remembered Scott as, quote, a nice young man, and he always had a good arm, but he was just trying to be mediocre. While not exactly bitter about his time with the Mets, Scott did note that he felt he had, quote, no mentors with the Mets. And while, of course, they were a bad team, uh, the Mets did have some veterans, such as Craig Swan and Pat Zachary, on the roster, as well as a former pitcher as manager and George Bamberger, and some developing young pitchers at the end of... Scott's terms, such as Jesse Orozco and Neil Allen, were starting to show process, so whether that that seems a little dubious, or maybe there were some signals crossed, but at any rate, by the end of 1982, uh, probably the Mets and Scott were in agreement that it was time to move on. 
in looking back after his career, Scott Simp said, I probably needed a change. I wasn't going anywhere with the Mets, and a change of scenery was a good thing. And so it was at the end of the 1982 season in December that the Mets traded Mike Scott to the Houston Astros for a disappointing second-round draft pick of their own, outfielder Danny Heap. It was a minor tra- transaction at the time. I knew little of Heap. I think I was just kind of happy to see Scott go. It seemed very unlikely that the two would both be prevalent in one of the most memorable postseason series ever, a mere four years later. The change of scenery did do some good for Scott. He had a decent 1983, uh, certainly by traditional metrics. He was 10-6 and six with a 3.73 ERA. Uh, but kind of the same peripherals, uh, 46 walks and 73 strikeouts in 145 innings. And not to say you have to be a strikeout pitcher, but just that he certainly was still not showing signs of becoming a pitcher, I think, who would one day dominate and become the best pitcher in the game, if just for a year or so. And in fact, in 1984, Scott Bolt suffered with shoulder tendonitis and had a terrible season, and he began to fear his pitching career was over, or maybe not immediately over, but that, you know, he could be a player on the bubble, on the periphery, and so forth. But serendipitously for Scott, after the 1984 season, he had dinner with teammate Enos Cabell, who had previously been with the Detroit Tigers, and raved to Scott about what former Tigers pitching coach Roger Craig had done for the staff, uh, notably with the split-finger fastball, teaching it to several pitchers on the Tigers' dominant 1984 World Championship team. Craig was in temporary retirement after that World Series, so uh, a meeting was arranged between Scott and Craig that turned Scott's career around. So whether it was what Scott and others cited, that his oversized hands allowed him to get an incredible grip on the ball and throw it at a higher speed uh, in the mid high 80s, a higher speed than other pitchers who had adapted the split finger, or whether it was something else first alleged in May of 1985 when the Cubs uh, claimed they saw Scott uh, slip something out of his glove and Leon Durham later said he found a piece of sandpaper near the mound. But New pitch or old-fashioned baseball cheating, whatever it was, the Mike Scott who turned 30 during the 1985 season uh, saw vastly improved results going 18-8 and eight that season with a 3.29 ERA, uh, throwing the split finger, he estimated, about 35% of the time, which I guess nowadays throwing your off-speed pitch that or even a higher percentage is more common, but was very uncommon back in that day, as anyone who listens to Keith Hernandez talk a lot uh, announcing that games would probably be well aware. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. At any rate, in my Mets-centric world of 1985, Mike Scott having a good year went under the radar. We had the best pitcher in baseball by a country mile, Doc Gooden. We had Darling and Fernandez and Aguilera, McDowell and Orozco in the bullpen, I did not notice that Mike Scott was gone or starting to starting to thrive outside of New York. And in fact, you could probably be forgiven if you weren't paying strict attention or didn't know how much the split finger or whatever, uh, I can't help saying that, sorry, would take baseball by storm over the coming year. Coming year. You could you know, just think that maybe this was someone who had a random career year in 1985, but nothing could prepare one for the 1986 season that Mike Scott was going to have. As a pitcher who, prior to 1985, had never had an ERA lower than 3.72, had never had a whip lower than 1.206, would go on to go 18-10 and 10 with a 2.22 ERA, 275 innings pitched, 306 strikeouts, previous career high, 137 the year before, and record a whip of 0.923, leading the league in virtually every pitching category and really pitching his best uh, down the stretch as the season was coming to an end. On September 25th of 1986, the Astros clinched the NL West and a date with the Mets in the NLCS, and Mike Scott did it in... Stunning, sterling fashion, hurling a no-hitter, striking out 13 a week later in what ostensibly was supposed to be a playoff tune-up. Mike Scott almost went Johnny Vandermeer, no-hitting the Giants again for six straight innings, going into the top of the seventh until Will Clark broke that one up with a double, leading off the bottom of the seventh. Suffice it to say, though, Mike Scott was entering the 1986 playoffs pitching as well as he had ever pitched, as well as very few other pitchers had ever pitched. And if I knew then what I knew now about baseball in general, and the Mets in particular, I would have been incredibly nervous. But these were the 1986 Mets, and you know, the team, I, I, I tried to buy a 1986 World Champions Mets t-shirt in May at a game. Uh, my parents, having the capacity that I did not, told me that I should wait until after the season to consider doing that, but I didn't care that the Astros had Mike Scott. I did not think it would matter for the 108-win juggernaut that the 1986 Mets had been, but the, unlike me, the Mets knew better, and the Mets were very nervous about facing Mike Scott in that series, and of course were not only concerned with trying to hit him, but perhaps were distracted by their belief that he was scuffing the ball to achieve or enhance his dominance. Game one of the series, of course, Scott outdueled Dwight Gooden in a 1-0 Astros victory. 
striking out 14 Mets and surrendering 5 hits. Perhaps just because the score was one nothing. perhaps because it was the start of the series, I feel like the Mets had a couple of base runners on late, and yeah, I just, just believed they were going to tie it the whole, the whole time. Wasn't incredibly nervous. The Mets would famously, I think all of these games are very famous, uh, famously win game two in the only semi-comfortable game in the series for the Mets, 5-1, to one, and of course game, win game three in an epic fashion on Lenny Dykstra's walk-off home run. But I mean, I, I'd like to think I've watched just about every Met playoff game, at least in my lifetime. I can't remember one that I missed. And I cannot recall a more hopeless one than Game 4 of the 1986 NLCS. I feel like it becomes something of a footnote, uh, both obviously because Scott did not get a chance to pitch Game 7 and potentially eliminate us, and because it was surrounded by three games that the Mets won uh, in their final at-bat, two of them epic extra-inning contests. But yeah, that was my first taste, I think, uh, as a fan of the 1986 Mets and the arrogance that they exuded and that as fans we embraced uh, Alan Ashby hit a two-run homer off of Sid Fernandez in the top of the second and that's about the only time I remember watching that team and just thinking there is no chance we're going to win this game tonight. I mean you know Shea and later City Field have rocked uh, with anticipation and, and joy and hope in a number of playoff games and it's watching from home, it seemed pretty quiet that night. Scott only struck out five in the game, but he only surrendered three hits. And the only run he allowed scoring, largely because of some impressive Mookie Wilson base running a single, uh, he did what Mookie did often, going first to third on a ground out to third and scoring, ironically, on a Danny Heap sacrifice fly. But even cutting the lead to 3-1 in the bottom of the eighth just yeah didn't didn't feel like the Mets had a chance which then forced the realization that Mike Scott would pitch game seven and we all know well what happened the next few games thank goodness to those of us who are Met fans but yeah it's just and I'm sure there'll be no shortage of quotes about it and talking about it in the documentary but yeah just Ron Darling you know said he he would have pitched Game 7, of course, and said he felt like I couldn't give up any runs because Mike Scott wasn't going to. Wally Backman was quoted as saying, "Is if we had lost Game 6, I wouldn't have slept at all prior to Game 7. Fortunately, the Mets would avoid finding out what would happen in that Game 7, and Mike Scott got, which I'm sure was scant, consolation prize, the MVP of the LCS, I believe only the third person at the time to win the MVP in a losing cause. Scott never again pitched to his 86 heights. I mean, he was uh, impressive in 87, 16 and 13, ERA 3.2, uh, and got some down-ballot uh, Cy Young votes. Uh, also had the interesting ignominy, I, I, I remember this, that Roger Craig uh, accused him of scuffing the ball in a game in mid-1987. And I remember feeling such righteous indignation and justification at the the Mets' outrage the year before, thinking if Roger Craig, who allegedly taught him the splitter, is accusing him of cheating, you know, come on. 
And in subsequent years, and in, you know, again, these things have been covered ad nauseum. Yeah, I think the MLB network has had the games and interviewed the players, and it seems like many of the Astros and even Scott himself uh, certainly dance around the question to the extent that uh, it seems pretty clear there was at least some element of scuffing the ball going on. Scott had two more strong years, though, in 88 and 89. Uh, 89 actually winning 20 games for the first and only time in his career. But in 90, he struggled badly, uh, had arthroscopic surgery on his labrum in the offseason, tried to come back at the start of the 91 season, and made only two starts, uh, suffered continuing shoulder pain, and eventually decided to retire at before the end of the 91 season due to the shoulder problems in his rotator cuff. Scott officially retired on September 25th, 1991, which was the fifth anniversary of the no-hitter that he threw. And a year later, the Astros retired his number on October 3rd, 1992, which actually surprised me when I read it. I mean, I mean, I guess it was a pretty good five-year run. It's not quite DeGrom, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> hey, it's not my team. I mean, we're, you know... Our teams just cracked not only retiring numbers that are Hall of Famers, so, you know, I guess it still seems a little lax to me, but good for him. And I can actually say that, though I was always frustrated that Scott didn't succeed succeed as a Met when I was young, but it's easy to be more forgiving when you're the winner and you raise the championship banner at the end of the season, isn't it? That's the funny and interesting part about Scott's legacy to me. I mean, if obviously if things went differently, he would be now. Uh, you know, this was long before LOL Mets was a thing. But, and I, I'm certainly one to laugh and bitch about my team because that's just a huge part of being a Met fan. But Scott always just reminded me a lot of, uh, I, I don't know, the modern equivalent, like kind of like Justin Turner. I, I never understand why people harp on, hey, the Mets let Justin Turner go, former Mets, Justin Turner. I mean, first of all, well, not the case with Scott, who only the Mets let go. Baltimore Orioles let Justin Turner go, too. And I'm sorry, Justin Turner spent three years with the Mets from 26 to 28 uh, years of age. And I mean, I liked him as a backup utility player, but... I don't think anybody thought he was going to become the player he was, and it just seems absurd to not like trading a Casimir or a Kalanick where everyone's predicting stardom and you can first guess the team if the player does in fact turn into a star. I don't think many people thought the Mets were making an epic mistake not keeping Justin Turner on the team, and... I don't think many people thought the Mets were making an epic mistake trading Mike Scott. And the Mets had Joey Batista. The Mets had Nelson Cruz. No, player development is not linear. And, you know, sometimes it happens late in a player's career. Sometimes they discover a new pitch or a new way to cheat. At any rate, it's refreshing that for once the Mets' relative success made trading away a young-ish fireballing pitcher who would go on to win a Cy Young Award with another team and rack up 24 war for another team and have them retire his number. Again, not, in my opinion, the strongest number retirement, uh, strongest case for number retirement there is, but it feels like this would normally be the narrative for the Mets, and instead it's basically a footnote. 
And I guess that's the goddamn flags fly forever mentality, but oh well, maybe there's some truth in it. But for his major league career, Mike Scott wound up 124 and 108 with a 3.54 ERA, uh, 22.7 war, according to baseball reference. He threw 2,068 innings and struck out 1,469 batters. Uh, as a Met, in over four parts of four seasons, Scott went 14 and 27 with a 4.64 ERA. He threw 364 innings, walking 122 and striking out 151. And as a Met, Scott recorded negative 0.7 WAR over his four seasons as a pitcher. He is currently 66 years old and, by all accounts, enjoying retirement. As the only blurbs I could really find about his post-retirement life were that he plays a lot of golf and the family likes to travel extensively. A high draft picked for the team who never was able to find success as a Met and came scarily close to derailing almost single-handedly the greatest season in the franchise's history and rendering 35 years of reminiscing and documentaries and ESPN specials moot. For that and more, Mike Scott, truly unformidable. Thanks for listening to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can find Unformidable and all of our Amazon pods wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets!